the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday, end of the week edition of The Dan Prof Show. Thank you for joining us all week. Follow us at danprofshow.com on social media, including Parler, of course, at Dan Prof. Uh, and um, we begin with this uh, video out of Georgia that has been making the rounds, hotly deb- debated topic for the last uh, 24 hours. And uh, it did generate a response from the Secretary of State's office, so we'll uh, offer both and then some thoughts on what was suggested and the response to what was suggested. First, what was suggested in a legislative hearing in Georgia yesterday by Trump's legal team in uh, reaction to video of a counting center at State Farm Arena in Fulton County, Georgia. Here's the description of what happened. I'm going to explain to you the evidence that we have from State Farm Arena here in Fulton County Um, which goes to what Ray was talking about in terms of fraud or misrepresentation. We have the tape from first thing in the morning all the way past the close of the polls. What you have is essentially two Republican um, field organizers who were sent here to be observers. At no time were they actually permitted to observe in a meaningful way. Not at this point. This is in the morning, as you can see the daylight. They're going to get there at about 8 o'clock, to watch the tabulation of absentee and military ballots. But according to their affidavits, at about 10 o'clock, there was one person working the polls who told everyone in the room to leave on the basis they were going to stop counting and return at 8.30 in the morning. What happens is everyone clears out, including the Republican observers in the press, but four people stay behind and continue counting and tabulating well into the night from that point, which is going to be about 1025 when they all clear out, or 1030. And they will continue counting unobserved, unsupervised, not in public view as your statute requires, until about one in the morning. They will wait until the witnesses over there in that roped off area, the press and the observers, leave the room. Then you'll see them move into action and begin scanning ballots. Once everyone is gone, coast is clear, they are going to pull ballots out from underneath a table. Yeah, I saw four suitcases come out from underneath the table. So what are these ballots doing there, separate from all the other ballots? And why are they only counting them whenever the place is cleared out with no witnesses? And so if we were to sit here for the next two hours, what we would see is that this operation just goes on and on and on. And the uh, suggestion was that somewhere between 18 and maybe 21,000 ballots were processed without uh, scrutiny by poll watchers that were asked to leave. That's the assertion. And that's what uh, the Trump camp says the video shows. 
That generated this response from Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who on Thursday evening sat down with Laura Ingram on her program and reiterated his call for a signature check audit of the Georgia election results. You know, I called early on for a signature audit. Obviously, the Secretary of State, per the laws and the Constitution, would have to order that. He has not done that. I think it should be done. I think, especially with what we saw today, it raises more questions. There needs to be transparency on that. Uh, I would again call for that. Reactions to this before the response from the Secretary of State's office, which I'll get to momentarily. It's interesting because my response, and you can check the tape of my morning show in Chicago, or you can just check check my Twitter feed. My response was, look, that's an assertion. There's videotape evidence that's been presented. There's an assertion being made by the Trump campaign. It is not the responsibility of the Trump campaign to explain what is on that video. It's the responsibility of those who have authority over the administration of elections in the state of Georgia. So that would be local election officials in Fulton County, and that would be Georgia state election officials, like at the Secretary of State's office. Their responsibility to to, uh, address the issues raised by the Trump campaign. That's what I said. And to make a conclusion, maybe there's an innocent explanation for it all. Well, let's hear it. You don't just get to wave it off, but it is interesting how... So many never-Trumpers, as well as, of course, the left, and as well as, of course, the D.C. press corps, just dismissed it, didn't even acknowledge it. And to the extent it acknowledges, just dismissed that you're not going to change the election. No matter what is presented, it's just you're not going to change the election results. I don't care if this changes the election results or not. It's in Fulton County. Maybe if uh, those ballots uh, were uh, legitimately counted and scrutinized, it would increase Joe Biden's lead in Georgia. The point is to say you can't willy-nilly violate election law. You have to explain legitimate questions, uh, respond to legitimate questions that are asked about how you're administering the election when you have video evidence that I think can reasonably raise questions about what exactly these election officials were doing. So it is instructive that those who suggest they're very concerned about ballot integrity, you know, Russian meddling in our election and so forth, are unconcerned about anything that transpired in 2020 at this point because they're happy with the outcome. That is uh, not the basis on which to establish faith in our representative republic and the elections, free and fair elections that undergird our representative republic. But okay, to the Secretary of State's office. What they suggest, and this uh, comes uh, from Gabriel Sterling, who is sort of the top uh, election person for the Secretary of State's office. This is a guy, by the way, earlier in the week who had a press conference calling on President Trump to tell people to stop threatening Georgia state election officials. Not that he was telling anybody to threaten him, but he's somehow responsible for people making untoward comments in the direction of Georgia Secretary of State employees. But but okay, he has said. What you actually see on the video is something that was investigated by the Secretary of State's office, and it's the normal procedure. There's nothing that looks bizarre or odd to him. Election workers known as cutters because their job was to open absentee ballot envelopes and verify ballots for eventual scanning and counting were dismissed for the night sometime after 10 p.m. on November 3rd, Election Day, because their work for the evening had been completed. Those workers who remained were responsible for conducting the scanning portion of the process since ballots could not be left without being scanned overnight. If you look at the videotape, he said, the work you see 
is the work you would expect, which is you take the sealed suitcase looking things in, you place the ballots on the scanner in manageable batches, and you scan them. Francis Watson, the chief investigator for the Georgia Secretary of State, said uh, that the ballots were in standard containers. The work during the time of question had nothing to do with pulling ballots from under table. She said, quoting, there wasn't a bin that had ballots in it under the table. It was an empty bin, and the ballots from it were actually out on the table when the media were still there. And then it was placed back in the box when the media were still there and placed next to the table. She also said there was never any announcement made to the media or or other observers about the counting being over for the night and them needing to leave. Nobody told them to stay. Nobody told them to leave. Nobody gave them any advice on what they should do. And it was still open for them or the public to come back in to view at whatever time they wanted to as long as they were still working. Uh, So that's how they respond to the characterization of what's on that video as standard operating procedure. Uh, Now, okay, fine. We have a response. And now this can be further investigated and discussed uh, because obviously you have Trump campaign officials or poll watchers, volunteers, suggesting that they were asked to leave and that they didn't just follow the cutters out of the counting area for the who are dismissed for the night while these ballots are being scanned and we also have questions about can you confirm that is exact that is actually what what happened uh that or what happened i should say actually it does comport with georgia state election law and the policies and procedures but what happened here should be happening everywhere everywhere there is a legitimate question Based on an irregularity, a statistical anomaly, you should have election authorities explaining, providing an explanation of what they say happened. Those with the authority to administer elections and thus those who owe an account to the constituents they serve. It seems to me that that just that the, the lack of skepticism, the dismissal of questions, the dismissal of Americans who've swore uh, to affidavits that they think something untoward happened. What they saw didn't look right. Maybe they misunderstood what happened. That's possible. But to just dismiss this out of hand, to say it's illegitimate to question, it's illegitimate to assert, you can't change the election and that's all that matters, so we're not interested in what you're interested in. We're not interested in the concerns that you have. That's no way to run a representative republic. That's no way to perpetuate a free society. We'll uh, continue our conversation. We're going to talk November jobs numbers next up with Scott the Cowguy Shalady from Fox Business. But we'll continue this conversation about uh, election challenges with uh, Adam Mill uh, at the uh, bottom of the hour. So stay tuned for that. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. The November jobs numbers are out and uh, did not beat street estimates. U.S. economy adding 245,000 jobs in November. Unemployment rate to falling to 6.7%. 
which is um, still well ahead of the recovery that was projected over the summer. But nonetheless, uh, this uh, amid um, rolling lockdown policies in big states and big cities, which has sort of been a recurring theme since the spring. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott the Cowguy Shalady, Fox Business regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. There we go. Good morning. Particularly ornery this morning. Uh, so uh, the uh, your comments on the November jobs numbers? Uh, we're getting better, but at a slower rate. We've been doing that probably for the last two or three months now, and that's been the, that's been the uh, alarming thing to a lot of folks like myself. I thought <clears throat> we've done a good job. Uh, we still have over just over four million people that are still out of work looking for work. We've got more than just halfway we're basically halfway through the damage that we did from the beginning starting in march but still we've handed the baton to biden when we are definitely slowing and 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 you you just mentioned rightfully so uh the draconian lockdowns that we're about to face here and even though we have a vaccine in the in the distance um there's going to be a rough patch here that we're going to have to get through and and unfortunately we're, we're going to have to get through with less uh Less, uh, you know, arm arm than we, than we thought we had. I, I just, it's hard. Um, we keep wanting things to get better, but we keep trying to hurt ourselves. We're like a bunch of high school girls that are cutting ourselves, right? It's just, it's it's. Uh, it, we love the we love the pl- the pleasure. The pain is pleasure for some reason. Washington Times piece that uh, about fifty percent of small businesses in Washington D.C. are closed, and um, the uh, the implication is permanently. Yeah, and, and and then you're going to have these mayors get uh, in front of their podiums or behind their podiums and scold us about how they're going to have to start cutting services because they've got no money. Well, they shut down their own economy. They're not going to get the municipal taxes to, to run the things that they need to run, just like, you know, but see, they don't know what a business is. They don't know how to run a business. They've never really signed the front of a check. So that's the problem. We've, we've got an issue here where people think that money grows on trees. And so, well, you know, when in point of fact we know it does not grow on trees, it is printed by the federal government. That's where money comes <laughs> from, which is the biggest tree of all time, right? So, you know, I, I just wrote my article for um, my weekend missive, and look, we, number one, we've got you, you turn on the television, all you hear is surge, spike, shatter. The world is ending. Okay, the world is going to end. Well, let me just tell you right now, if the world was going to be ending, the smartest guys in the room work at some of these boutique financial firms across the globe. And there's no way that they would be put their capital at risk if they thought the sky was falling, the stock market would be falling faster. Okay. So take a little bit of comfort in that. Number two is, you know, they also have, uh, they also write a lot of 30 year mortgages, right? And they write a lot of 30 year mortgages on oceanfront property around the world, but we've got ice caps that are melting and we've got global warming and all these, these places are supposed to be underwater in 15 years, but these guys are still writing mortgages for 30 year loans. So in the global warming is not showing up in the financial world, right? Neither is the end of the world with COVID showing up in the financial world. So Keep an eye on those two things because that's where it's going to show up first. And right now they're telling us it's going to be fine, but the television's not telling us it's going to be fine. And everybody's so afraid now they can't do do anything. And that's going to, it's going to slow this economy down and slow the recovery down. And it's coming through in the numbers. We are absolutely slowing down, and we have been for the last three, three and a half months. Well, and, and again, the um, the you know sort of a big picture macro data here in terms of who's being hurt. Uh, this uh, journal piece before the announcement of the November jobs numbers today. The um, 
uh, U.S. labor force is 2.2 percent smaller than it was in February. That's a loss of 3.7 million workers. That is mm-hmm. substantial. The labor force participation rate, uh, 61.7% in October, down uh, from 63.4 in February. That is near its lowest level since, 1970, since the 1970s. And who's getting pushed out of the labor market right now? Uh, baby boomers, generally speaking, and uh, women, uh, more specifically speaking. Right. And so when you go to Dairy Queen this weekend and there's a 98-year-old woman serving you ice cream, that's a good example of what, what the world's going to look like in a few years. Because, again, going back to our, our legislators, with what they've been doing as far as picking and choosing the businesses that can stay open and have to shut what's essential and not essential, they're turning Main Street into the only place that can survive this type of a downturn, and that's big box stores and chain restaurants. Main Street USA is going to be Bed Bath and a Burger. There's going to be nothing left. And they're doing it to themselves. And that's hurting all the mom and pop shops and all the small businesses. And anybody that has any family that works at anything like that, it's actually which is the fabric and flavor of America, is going to be gone. And, the, and it's happening in front of your very eyes. And I don't, you know, I, I just wonder how come it's taking so long for some, like the Restaurant Association of New York, to finally stand up and say, this, this is, oh, Chicago. Why aren't they all opening up on Monday morning? There's not enough cops to handle that. Something else interesting, uh, Peter Thiel uh, uh, telling Forbes, uh, I keep thinking uh, the other side of it, the crazy froth uh, of some of these uh, valuations of companies uh, going public. I keep thinking the other side of it is that one should think of COVID and the crisis of this year as the giant watershed moment where this is the first year of the 21st century. This is the year in which the new economy is actually replacing the old economy. So for futurists like Peter Thiel, um, they see a lot of positivity here. And by the way, he's making big bets on some of these uh, startup companies in the autonomous transportation space and um, makers of cleaner cars and trucks as well. Uh, they see this as uh, just a transformation, a Schumpeterian uh, gale of destruction, uh, and the new economy is going to be the result on the other side. Uh, you know, I mean, part of me will sign up to a little bit of that, but I would say a little bit, I would say a little simpler. All right. I would say this. Remember that game when you were a kid, Asteroids, uh, and there was that button that was a hyper, the hyperspace button, and you could kind of hit it and escape and then come back someplace else. It just got you where you were going faster. COVID has been one big hyperspace button. We've only gone to where we're going to be faster because of COVID. That's what I think. Look, these companies were struggling going into it. Bricks and mortar. We have two to three times as much retail space in America than we actually need. So corona, the coronavirus is going to hit the hyperspace button, and we're going to get to where we were going just a little bit faster. I don't think there's a new economy. I just think it's the one we had before. But we've just sped up to where we, you know, maybe our 10-year plan turns into a three-and-a-half, five-year plan instead. That's all. And, and that, it's okay. I mean, but I still think that w- the way we're indiscriminately shutting some of these businesses down, I mean, you do need your corner pizza shop. You know, you do need your small hardware stores. You can't just let those people die on the vine. So <clears throat> with that said, we are going to have a different economy, but we were going there anyway. It's just going to happen faster. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just the way of the world. He is Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business Regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend. See ya. It's the most wonderful time of the year.
There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Today, a Carson City, Nevada judge is going to rule on a complaint a filed there by the Trump campaign uh, attempting to bar uh, the electors for Joe Biden uh, and prevent formalizing his victory uh, in Nevada when the Electoral College meets later this month. Judge James Russell, hearing uh, oral arguments in the case on Thursday, did not make a determination saying he needed the evening to review the evidence cited uh, in uh, both campaign attorneys' arguments to decide. He, and again, he's supposed to issue a ruling today. So we'll see. Um, I listened to uh, two hours worth of oral arguments before the judge yesterday, so you didn't have to. Um, a highlight from Jesse Benal's offering to the court, Jesse Benal representing the Trump campaign, was um, this uh, affidavit, a Doe 1 affidavit, as it was referenced, that uh, attested to electronic vote manipulation. Take a listen. And the fact that those disks in each of these voting machines, you would put a USB disk. And that USB disk was not encrypted, didn't have security on it. And the voting machines themselves were essentially not password protected. And they were hooked up to laptops then where the laptops themselves could have been uh, compromised. And in the middle of the night, what, well, what they would do is they would log these disks in and out. Good practice. And the disks had a specific serial number on them. And numerous times, a disk would be logged out with one vote total on, uh, on it and logged back in the next morning during the early vote period with a different number on it. Sometimes more, sometimes less. What that means is that literally in the dead of night, votes were appearing and votes were disappearing on these machines. Votes were appearing and votes were disappearing. To find out how this could happen, and no one can tell us how it can happen other than the fact you know, that we know that there wasn't any encryption on the disks. You would plug this disk into, into a computer and you could access all the votes on it. You could change totals, you could change um, columns for the voters. How much we know. Um, and the unfortunate thing is, we can't get our, uh, we can't have access to these machines in such a way that we can inspect them to verify that these machines are doing what they're supposed to do. Instead, the manufacturer of the machines 
rests on claims of intellectual property for the code and whatnot that they have. That's a problem. It's a problem. And so how do they know uh, the truth of what they allege, that uh, there were different vote totals in in the evening versus at night with respect to these uh, USB disks? They reviewed logbooks for the disks with early vote totals in Nevada. And so they see different numbers in the logbooks. And this is, uh, again, uh, per uh, affidavits that were presented as part of the evidence they submitted to the court. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, particularly uh, we combine it with uh, that uh, video that surfaced yesterday in the hearings and legislative hearings in Georgia about uh, that uh, Fulton County voting site that was cleared uh, because we were going to stop voting and then reconvene in the morning. And yet they continued voting, processing as many as 18,000 ballots or the claim is at least 18,000 ballots without any scrutiny, without the press there. The room was cleared. And so you st- and and in addition to that, you know, over the course of the last three weeks, there have been specific batches of votes, but batches of votes that have been identified, including in Nevada, uh, that start to get you to uh, potentially substantial levels of irregularities, fraud, misconduct. Use the terminology you prefer that would potentially uh, lead to uh, overturning of the election. When you talk about uh, the number of people allegedly who didn't have residency who voted in Georgia or Nevada and other such cohorts that could be examined if you got to a discovery phase and really opened up uh, the process for both sides to comb through what evidence can be called together. When we come back, we will be joined by Kansas City, Missouri-based attorney Adam Mill, contributor to amgreatness.com, to discuss how, in his view... Trump is able to obtain justice in response to all these election irregularities. Dan Prof Show for a conversation on all things election irregularities related. We are pleased to be joined by Kansas City, Missouri-based attorney Adam L. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've written a piece about Trump getting justice for election irregularities, and essentially it's through state legislative bodies that have plenary power here with respect to certifying electors. But even with respect to state legislatures, were they so inclined, perhaps after seeing that video in Georgia, Republicans in Georgia say, well, wait a second, got to put a stop to this. And if we can't uh, get uh, the Secretary of State to intercede and pursue the appropriate remedies, then we'll intercede. In order to do that, you still have to provide these state legislatures with sort of evidentiary cover. I mean, the standard of evidence may be different for the legislature versus a court of law, but politically, it's not going to be that much different. It has to be compelling for these politicians in Republican-controlled state legislatures in places like Georgia and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona to um, put their political careers on the line over this. 
Well, I mean, I think what you're saying is true, but the state legislatures are much better positioned, in my opinion, to evaluate voting irregularities than some judge. I mean, first of all, all of these individuals have gone through elections. They're all plugged in to the local politics, and they're all probably in a much better position to have firsthand knowledge of whether the election was handled properly or not. And then, of course, they're all accountable to the voter. So some judge playing kind of Russian roulette when you take the case to court and hope that you're going to get a judge to rule in your favor, because a lot of judges are on one side or the other. But these legislatures, most of the swing states have Republican legislatures, and the legislatures can hold hearings. That's being done in, I think, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Nevada is having some hearings. Yeah, the legislatures have subpoena power. They have lawyers on their staff. They can act quickly, unlike a court in which they can get bogged down in procedures, things can get tied up in appeal. The the legislature can kind of act as a quasi-political and a quasi-judicial body. And once it rules, once it says, hey, we don't think that this election was done properly, that it failed. You know, I cited to this 1892 case, Pearson versus Blacker, in which the Supreme Court very clearly said the Constitution does not say that these electors are picked by popular vote. The legislatures have chosen to do that. But if the legislatures are not satisfied that that was done properly... The legislatures think that those problems amount to obscuring the actual true result. You know, and that's why I like to use the term irregularities instead of fraud, because fraud is a you know, kind of a higher burden of proof. But if the irregularities frustrated the legislature's right to set the rules of the game beforehand, and we don't know, based on those rules, what the outcome was, this 1892 case was cited in Bush v. Gore in 2000, and it was cited again by the Supreme Court this year in a case involving fining electors. And I think the language is pretty clear. Adam, I'm sure you saw the uh, video out of Georgia yesterday that uh, the Trump legal team asserts was uh, evidence of Fulton County election authorities processing ballots after they had told both poll watchers and the media to to leave. Is is that election fraud? I think that one advantage of the legislature is that they can look at videos like that, and if it just doesn't pass the smell test with them, they can draw inferences and take leaps that maybe a court is unwilling to do. Uh, in this short period of time, you can look at videos like that. You can look at some of the affidavits that are being presented. And if the legislature just doesn't have confidence and they're willing to stand by their decision and be accountable to the voters, they don't have to say, oh, this is fraud. You know, and particularly when the Democrats in these Democrat-controlled cities prevent Republican observers from watching the ballot counting, I think that's very serious. And that alone could give rise to a reason not to have confidence in the election. When there's a lack of proof, and the lack of proof came about because Democrats took steps to prevent accountability, then you can draw an assumption from that. Well, why did they prevent the Republicans from viewing the ballot counting? And, of course, the natural assumption is is because they were doing something that they didn't want the Republicans to see. Right. Uh, Theoretically, that's true. But, of course, you have to contemplate these things in the context of the reality of how they operate and so the political pressures that they're subject to. It is interesting, though, thinking about that, right? The argument is, well, the legislatures aren't going to intervene here because there would be, you know, civil war. It would Half the country would say the election was illegitimate if they sent a competing slates of electors uh, from Republican-controlled states. Well, that, that's the argument that right now more than half the country at least thinks that the election result that puts Joe Biden in the White House is illegitimate. So I guess 
if you're just going to sort of hide behind that political argument, you have to say, well, I'm afraid the left would uh, engage in violence where Trump voters won't. And so we'll just go along with this, even though we have serious qualms about the administration of the election, about the statistical anomalies that go unexplained, about the lack of accountability for incidences like that were caught on video in Georgia. It seems to me that part of this really is, in addition to sort of the jurisprudence that you reference and laying that out, is pressing back politically, whether you're the Trump campaign team, whether you're the president of the United States himself, as he began to do this week, or your courageous legislators at the local level to make the case to the public, wait a second, let's make sure we're applying this you know, belief in the legitimacy of the election in both directions. Well, I think the, the, the public has a role in convincing their legislatures. And that's another advantage of, of the legislature having responsibility here is that, you know, you can't influence a judge if you're, you know, Joe Blow, private citizen. Mm. But a lot of Trump, you know, act, active Trump supporters know who their local legislature is, and they can bring the arguments and the evidence directly to their local representative. And that representative should represent their their position in the legislature. I mean, that's that's what this is such a, 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 a an elegant solution that the framers came up with. You know, right off the bat is to, you know, let's let the local state legislatures control who who um, will represent the state in in terms of voting for the president in Congress as the electors. And it's a much more democratic, much more participatory process. Oh, sure. Somebody's going to be angry no matter what happens. But somebody gets to decide. And the, and the Constitution says who gets to decide. The Supreme Court says who gets to decide. And that's the legislature. If you want the Supreme Court to back Trump and to set aside this fraud case, you better have some legislation or some state legislatures saying that these elections were illegitimate. If you, if you don't win there, you're not going to win. If, if the legislatures allow these electors to get appointed and sent to Congress, it's over. He is Adam Mill, Kansas City, Missouri-based attorney specializing in labor, employment, and public administration law, contributor to The Federalist, Sam Greatness, and The Daily Caller. I will tweet out the piece that he was referencing, How Trump Gets Justice for Election Irregularities. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Show.com. Welcome back to the show. Just rounding out an hour where we spent a lot of time talking about the election challenges. Good commentary from Jacob Hornberger over at the Future Freedom Foundation. While President Trump continues to maintain the president presidential election was marred by massive fraud, the mainstream press continues to maintain that Trump's charges are false and baseless and that his allegations are damaging trust in America's small-D democratic electoral system. Actually, however, it's the other way around. It's the press, owing to its extreme deferential attitude toward the D.C. establishment, that has severely damaged trust in America's democratic system. Uh, he points out that this is you know, the case that there sometimes has been election fraud in the history of America. Um, I've given a couple of examples on this show, an obvious one that many people are familiar with, the 1960 election and Richard J. Daley's delivery of uh, Illinois for John F. Kennedy, uh, the 1982 governor's race in Illinois, 
I used as an example, went through that. Hornberger goes to the 1948 U.S. Senate race in Texas, where Lyndon Johnson bested popular Governor Koch Stevenson. And it's now fairly well documented. Johnson told, LBJ told a crony of his who controlled some South Texas counties to keep his poll results open in case Johnson needed the extra votes to win. A guy named George Parr. And he did need George Parr's help to win, and George Parr helped him, producing two additional 200 votes LBG needed, LBJ needed, which gave him the victory. The election judge, many years later, confirmed he had, in fact, done that. The 200 signatures on the voter list, all in the same ink, and the names of the 200 voters were in alphabetical order. Johnson loses that election. He's never vice president, and he's never president. So, you know, voter fraud matters. But uh, getting back to present day, Hornberger notes, the problem with the press is that the Trump-Biden race uh, in the in the coverage of the Trump-Biden race is the speed by which it concluded that the election was not marred by fraud. It reached its conclusion before the election was even over. We It looks like we got the election we want. So most secure election in history. We're done. And Hornberger basically just is an advocate for a proper level of skepticism. He writes, now it's very possible that Trump assertions are false, but how could the mainstream press know that before or immediately after the election without even the semblance of any press investigation into the allegations? Perhaps they believed it's inconceivable, but how can it be inconceivable when it's undisputed LBJ, for example, when his Senate race through fraud or other such well-known historical examples? It certainly can't be because the press immediately conducted an investigation and found no evidence of fraud in the Trump-Biden race because the mainstream press reaches conclusions immediately and never conducted any independent investigation. And that's the core of the problem. The mainstream press's deference to D.C. by automatically embracing its official position that the election was honest and above board. In a free society, the citizenry necessarily depended on an independent press to keep the government honest. The citizenry lacked the resources, time to investigate official misconduct themselves. Thus, they necessarily depend on a vibrant, dynamic, independent press to do this job for them. That's where the press has failed America and severely damaged America's democratic system. It's become a loyal lapdog for the D.C. establishment, never daring to challenge it, question, or investigate it at a fundamental level. That's right. It's not the fourth estate. It's not the D.C. press corps, or it is the D.C. press corps. And by uh, using that moniker, I mean it's the big government press corps. It is a government press, and that's a problem, at least if you're interested in a free society. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com. Podcast, you can get there as you can on Spotify and iTunes. At Dan Proft Show and at Dan Proft on uh, social media, including Parler. Uh, I wanted to uh, revisit uh, one of the stories of the week, at least as it pertains to pushback against lockdown policies. And that's the story of Max Public House in Staten Island, which we've talked about a good bit. Danny Presti, uh, freshly, freshly uh, released from prison, was... Uh, jail, I guess. I don't want to be dramatic, but nonetheless, Danny Presti was on Fox and Friends talking about where things stand, not only after him being taken out in cuffs, his lawyer also getting summons, a state, a state senator representing the area showing up, trying to get an explanation. He, also a former federal prosecutor, a former prosecutor was the state senator, trying to get an explanation from sheriff's police about why they were effecting arrest on Presti. And we ultimately understood it was because he was trespassing on his own property. 
Hmm. Uh, but um, uh, so that that plus the, the rallying after the event this week. And now uh, where do things stand with Max Public House? As uh, you have heard now from Governor Cuomo, uh, Emmy Award winning governor, you see him play a governor on TV, that uh, Presti was made an example of because he under, has to understand reckless conduct like his, keeping his establishment open during a pandemic, has consequences. Here's how Danny Presti responded in updating the situation on Fox and Friends this morning. Uh, I'm going to say we're definitely not shut down for good. Uh, we have taken a little break, uh, just mainly because Keith and I have had a whirlwind of a week, uh, to say the least. And we are the main operators. We have a very small staff. Uh, we're a close unit. We've always said that Max does not have staff. We have family. So um, we've taken a little bit of time, Keith and I, and told the staff, let's take a little break, um, regroup, get our heads in check. Uh, we're the ones that would be going grocery shopping at, at the depots to stock everything anyway. So uh, we're regrouping. Um, figuring out what's going on. We do have some meetings with some uh, state and city officials to try to uh, get them to be on board and support us. Because uh, again, we don't want any of this. Yeah. Uh, we want to be able to work with them. So we have some plans. It looks like we're all moving in the right direction. Uh, so we've shut down for a couple of days, but the plan is to get Max back operational in the next day or two. For more on this uh incident and what it may represent in terms of where we're at with COVID-related policies, particularly the lockdown policies. Pleased to be joined again by David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributor to The New York Post as well. He may be the last man standing in New York City before it's all said and done. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, how did you receive uh, the uh, the week-long saga associated with that uh, establishment at on uh, Staten Island? It's clearly an outrageous overreach as so much of this has been by the government officials here in New York City. But to me, it's also a glimmer of hope, not just that these brave small business owners were willing to, to stand up to the, you know, the Leviathan, if you will, but that they've been getting a lot of support from people in the city and from people in the media who understand at this point that it doesn't make any sense to stay locked down in these ways. Even the World Health Organization says this now. It's kind of bizarre that we still have so many voices on the left in the United States who think that this is efficacious or that, that this is what we should be doing. So, look, I, I hope that we see more of this. I know it's very, very dangerous because these places can lose their liquor license. They can suffer real damaging consequences. And so that's why I use the word brave. I mean, this, this was not an easy thing for these guys to do. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because at the same time this happened, restaurant uh, association filing suit in L.A. County over the uh, banning of outdoor dining and an L.A. County judge actually saying to the city or to the county, you know, you have to prove up. You have to have evidence to suggest why this is a public health emergency such that a ban on outdoor dining as well is appropriate. But uh, so at the same time that's happening and the legal challenges on the on the other coast, you still have mayors like Eric Garcetti issuing orders that include making sure that no one does unnecessary walking around town or bicycling around town? No, it, it's absolutely bizarre. And I'll tell you something interesting about the restaurant situation 
in New York. I was talking to Staten Island City Councilman Joe Borelli uh, just yesterday. He's one of the few Republican elected officials here in the city. Now, in a lot of in New York, as in many cities in the country that have indoor dining now, when you go in, you have to fill out your name, your phone number, and your address. Contact uh, tracing. Your temperature t- right. That's the idea is contact tracing, right? And so someone comes down with COVID, they tell the contact tracer, oh, I was at this restaurant at this time, then the government's able to reach out to anyone else who was, right? That's the idea, right? That started two months ago. Joe has not been able to get any data from the city or the state from this contact tracing. So he's actually, a, a city councilman has actually filed the Freedom of Information Act request to get a look at this data. Where's the data? Yeah, I don't want to speculate, but if, if they have this data and it's underwhelming, that's a scandal. I mean, we need to see we need to see this data, just as the judge in L.A. said, because I'll tell you, I was in Chicago last week and I tried to do some outdoor dining. One day it was like 50 degrees and it was all right. The next day it was 45 degrees, and there's a reason they call it the Windy City. These <laughs> restaurants are going to be destroyed. Well, right. And uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's and the, the culture here, too. Uh, well, actually, you know what, let me. I want to make a point about the, the data you're talking about because here, here we go again. This is very much like trying to extract the data from New York State regarding nursing home deaths uh, mm-hmm. and, and trying to make an assessment about Andrew Cuomo's disastrous policy of reintroducing the sick into nursing homes. You know, all of a sudden, hey, even to address that is to uh, to, to to ask that question is impertinent. Uh, and it is beyond the uh, beyond uh, the, the scope of relevance here, because when it comes to questions like that, you get the oh hey, we have to look prospective. We have to deal with the crisis in real time. I, I don't want to be relitigating these issues, which is essentially the posture Cuomo's taken. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 well, yes. I, I, but see, the, the broader problem here, and one of the one of the, the most underreported stories of the entire lockdown is that in March, the state legislature gave Andrew Cuomo basically unlimited power. Right? This right. happened all over the country. Right. We have these governors now who for 10 months have been, op- have been operating as dictators while they accuse Trump of being an authoritarian, which is kind of amazing. But one of the problems with this kind of authoritarian rule on the state level is if, you're, if restaurant owners in Staten Island want to petition the government to say, hey, we don't think this is working, they can get a few hundred people outside of a state assemblyman or a state uh, senator's office and that's a big deal to that state assemblyman or that state senator. Governors don't do constituent services. The governor is not who you go to as a business owner or a citizen and say, I have a problem here. And so all of these lower levels of government are just sort of being shut out. Uh, and, and it's a disaster. And, and it really has to stop. Our state legislatures have to stop functioning again. Uh, speaking of um, the whole uh, Trump is an authoritarian, but we're the one that actually put authoritarianism into practice. Um, you wrote a piece for the Federalist uh, about the not my president crowd, those suggesting that uh, uh, Trump needs to abide these norms that we didn't abide. I mean, it's very much like talking about covid policy, uh, norms for mm-hmm. thee, but not for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the basic the, the basic point is we're about three, three and a half weeks from the election. The president is and his legal team, the campaign, are, are fighting legal battles that I think, I think almost all observers at this point understand. And I think even the, even the president has intimated, uh, he understands, are not going to change uh, what seems to be the result right now. But uh, this is not a coup. The, the, these, are, these are challenges in the court, right? This is what you're supposed to do. Compare that to four years of 
Trump's a Russian asset. The, 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 the Russians changed the outcome of the election. We're going to impeach him over a phone call. I mean, it never stops. So for these people who, from day one, questioned the legitimacy of the Trump president and literally said, this is not my president, what does that mean? In, unless, you've, in, in, unless you've given up your American citizenship, saying that someone is not my president means that you are saying his presidency is not legitimate. So for them to turn around and say that we instantly have to throw our arms around Joe Biden for the good of the country, I mean, you know, it's a family radio show. So even though I live in Brooklyn, I'm not going to say what, what my reaction to that yeah. would be. Well, and also, too, I mean, just on the legislatures uh, around the country, those, those uh, other branches of government that have been lost in some states. Well, actually, you have state legislatures in some that are Republican-controlled in some of these swing states that are still being uh, – litigated, the results still being challenged, that are actually exercising their plenary power as it pertains to elections, whereas in some of these blue states where the governor is, uh, you know, omnipotent, apparently, in places like New York and Illinois, California, uh, you might as well disband the state legislatures. So isn't that interesting, too, in terms of where there are co-equal branches of government that still exist and where there are not? Absolutely. David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributor to The New York Post. Uh, check out his piece, which I'll tweet out, that not my present crowd needs to sit down and shut up. That's the polite version. David Marcus, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us as usual. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show and uh, per our discussion with david marcus let's turn to some of the not my president crowd effectively or certainly um, their president uh, since Donald Trump wasn't now, that's the belief that they have their president now in Joe Biden. And, of course, his uh, running mate, Reparation Age, Vice President Kamala Harris. That's what they believe. And uh, it feels like uh, we're still in campaign mode, not just because the election results are being challenged by President Trump in so many states, but also because you're still being uh, treated with uncritical D.C. press corps interviews of Team Biden. And so another one last night, Jake Tapper playing the ringmaster for Joe and Kamala, previewing uh, a Biden-Harris administration and, uh, you know, trying to get under the hood a little bit and see how are you guys going to work it out when you disagree? How are you going to resolve differences of opinion? And uh, that was the occasion for Joe Biden also to offer something reminiscent of the campaign, which is a bizarre response. When we disagree, it'll be just like so far. It's been just like when Barack and I did. It's in private. She'll say, I think we should do A, B, C or D. And I'll say, I don't I like A, don't like B and C. Mm-hmm. And it's OK. But and I like I told Barack, if 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 I reach something where there's a, a fundamental disagreement we have based on a moral principle, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll 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 develop some disease and say I have to resign. We needed a rim shot or a laugh track there. Perhaps CNN can provide the next time they offer one of these uh, fluff interviews for Team Biden Harris or Team Harris Biden, as the case may be, since uh, Joe Biden is already looking for a way out the door. I understand that was supposed to be a joke. And I also understand that that's indicative of this goof, this goofy 50 year politician, this intellectual lightweight, this fabulous dope named Joe Biden. But okay, 
Uh, turn the reins over to him, sure. And uh, going back to our conversation with uh, Marcus about norms, you know, as I said with him, much like with COVID policy, for the left, it's norms for thee, but not for me. And so Joe Biden on whether or not he's concerned at all that uh, Trump may not show up for his inauguration. Does he want President Trump at his inauguration? I really worry about the image we're presenting to the rest of the world. You know, the rest of the world's looked at us, and you've heard me say this a number of times, and I apologize for repeating it. They followed us not just because the power, the example of our power, the power of our example. I don't accept your apology for repeating that, and I also don't accept that response. It's, but it's so telling. It seems like, well, that's just a, a throwaway bromide. It's a pay on to unity. Actually, it's more telling than that. I'm not concerned about the domestic reaction. I don't, it's of no personal consequence to me whether Trump shows up or not, said Biden. Don't care about that. It's about, uh, you know, our perception in the world, how the world sees it. And so, for example, in 2016 and into 2017, you know, we had uh, the Obama family with the Trump family, or at least uh, Barack and Michelle with Trump and Melania to give the appearance of a peaceful transition of power, while behind the scenes we were staging a coup. It's just the, the patina, the veneer I'm interested in. It's just the Potemkin imagery. But uh, of course, if we don't like the outcome, we can engage in skullduggery behind the scenes. It's just not to be out in the light of day for public consumption. And then uh, Joe Biden, uh, his uh, policy agenda, first hundred days, what are some of the things he's going to do? He's been very concerned about the, the pace of transition, cooperation. He was, at least for a time. He's got his COVID task force all assembled, ready to go. they got developing these uh, yet-to-be-unveiled vaccine distribution plans and other COVID prevention-related policies, right? Here's what he offered to Tapper. I'm going to ask the public for 100 days to mask. Just 100 days. Oh, 100 days to mask, two weeks to slow the spread. We get it heard it before 100 days to mass to achieve a significant reduction that needs to be tightened up a little bit more pithy hashtag quality continue to workshop that no follow-up from jake tapper on that because again these things are received uncritically by the dc press corps but i I have some questions i'd like to hear more i mean joe biden look this is somebody who per his own per his own uh, description stopped ebola from making its way to the shores of america during the obama administration This is somebody tasked by President Obama to cure cancer. I mean, this is obviously a man of great wisdom and deep scientific knowledge when it comes to disease. And I'd like to hear more. How'd you come up with 100 days? You and your team. I mean, you've got a blue ribbon panel of COVID experts, Osterholm and 75 and out Zeke Emanuel and others. Give us the details, how you arrived at this decision. Show your work. The 100 days is the magic time frame. Uh, Significant reduction. What do you mean by that? How significant? How is that going to proceed? Not going to be forever. So then what's after that 100 days of mask wearing? How do you respond to particular studies on mask wearing that show mask wearing to be generally ineffectual in the prevention of spread? Uh, Out of Mount Sinai, Danish study, for example. Could you comment on those, on the science? Obviously, you dispute their findings. Please elaborate. Wouldn't it be nice to get uh, that level of detail Inspire confidence because he's so knowledgeable on the topic. The scientific basis for that policy proposal he just made. Don't you want to hear it? All those men and women of science out there? So that you can share the science and data behind it. And then we can operate in unison with one another. Because we all have an appreciation for the depth 
and texture of the science behind this policy, these men and women of science. Not forever. Maybe it won't need to be forever because you won't need to encourage people to do something they're willing to volunteer to do. Maybe uh, across the pond in Britain, we get a little more, more honesty from the deputy chief medical officer, a gentleman named Jonathan Van Tam, than we do from Joe Biden. Jonathan Van Tam making the following remarks alongside PM Boris Johnson during a Downing Street coronavirus briefing earlier this week, saying, I don't think we're going to eradicate coronavirus ever. I think it's going to be with humankind forever. I think we may get to a point where coronavirus becomes a seasonal problem. I don't want to draw too many parallels with the flu, but possibly this is the kind of way we'd learn to live with it. Learn to live with it? Those are fighting words when Trump honored them. That is, those, are, those are the ravings of an ignoramus. Learn to live with it, aren't they? Do I think there will come a big moment where we will have a massive party and throw our masks and hand sanitizer and say, that's it, it's behind us, like the end of the war? No, I don't. I think those kind of habits that we have learned from will perhaps persist for many years, and that may be a good thing if they do, said Professor Van Tam. I hope that we will get back to a a much more normal world, but the point I was trying to make was, do I think possibly some of those personal habits for some people will persist longer and perhaps become enduring for some people? Yes, I think that's possible. Well, sure it is. Sure it is. When you're rewarded with uh, self-esteem as a hero for mindlessly abiding the diktats of your overlords, then uh, it becomes second skin. You don't need your overlords to continue to wag their finger and tell you what to do, tell you to do something that you're being rewarded for doing. I mean, other than perhaps the loss of a job, the loss of a livelihood, the retardation of your kid's social and intellectual development based on their lack of access to quality education in the classroom. I mean, besides that, but you're being rewarded psychically. You're a good person, not those bad people who ask questions and raise science concerns about uh, the uh, persuasiveness of the science or the data behind some of these government edicts. Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden's right. Yeah, 100 days and then, you know, not forever. We'll take it from there after the 100 days, won't we? This is Dan Prof. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and um, we did this a bit yesterday, but I'm not done paying tribute to Walter Williams, the great economics professor, syndicated columnist from George Mason University in front of this show and a friend of mine for my decade or so in, in radio. Uh, as the tributes continue pouring in, some of them are, are great. But I want to start with Walter Williams' final column before his passing. It's very interesting to me because it parallels Milton Friedman in this sense. What's the uh, legacy foundation of Milton Friedman, the great Nobel laureate? The Friedman Foundation for Educational Choice. What's the final column of Walter Williams? Black education tragedy is new. It's interesting that two of the most uh, important economic thinkers of the last hundred years place so much emphasis on education and educational choice, so much emphasis on education and opposition to 
these Soviet-style K-12 through systems that have done such a poor job at such a great expense in providing the opportunity to earn a quality education, particularly but not limited to urban centers around the country, which is why our program focuses so much on school choice and organizations like uh, American Federation for Children that advance school choice policies, opportunity scholarship programs around the nation, why we want to profile success stories like we did yesterday of Walter Blanks Jr. out of Ohio. If this is where Walter Williams and his best friend Thomas Sowell and Nobel laureate Milton Friedman and so many other of our most important freedom-loving thinkers place their attention, so much of their mind share, then uh, that's a pretty good indicator that we're in a good space if we're doing similarly. In his piece, Williams compares uh, Baltimore, among others, the Baltimore of uh, a bygone era to the Baltimore of today. First, the Baltimore of today. Project Baltimore began an investigation of Baltimore's school system. What they found was an utter disgrace. In 19 of Baltimore's 39 high schools, out of 3,800 students, only 14 of them, less than 1%, were proficient in math. In 13 of Baltimore's high schools, not a single student scored proficient in math. 1% overall in 19 of the 39, in 13 of the 39, not a single student proficient in math. In five Baltimore high schools, not a single student scored proficient in math or reading. Despite these numbers... About 70% of the students graduated and are conferred a high school diploma, a fraudulent high school diploma, writes Williams. It wasn't always this way. Should we blame the education tragedy and racial discrimination or, cl- or uh, claim that it's a legacy of slavery? Williams asks. Dr. Thomas Sowell, his research, Education, Assumptions versus History, documents academic excellence at Baltimore's Frederick Douglass, Douglass High School and others. This academic excellence occurred during the late 1800s to the mid-1900s, an era where blacks were much poorer than today and faced gross racial discrimination. Frederick Douglass High School of yesteryear produced many distinguished alumni, such as Thurgood Marshall and Cab Calloway, several judges, congressmen, civil rights leaders. Frederick Douglass High School was second in the nation in black PhDs among its alumni. Wow. So what's happening today? He writes, if we accept the notion that rotten education is not preordained, then I wonder when the black community will demand an end to an educational environment that condemns so many youngsters to mediocrity. You can bet the rent money that white liberals and high-income blacks would not begin to accept the kind of education their children for their children that most blacks receive. And thus, it's the civil rights issue of our time. We had discrimination by law, separate but equal, the subordination of black Americans during this time when many of these uh, schools and many uh, black students excelled. And yet now, as Williams writes, things are markedly worse in terms of academic achievement and thus opportunities available. And yet there's a persistence to discriminate based on household income and address. There's a persistence to make the school systems, as we've seen, perhaps most uh, notably during COVID, adult-friendly and oriented to the extent that uh, children get educated in some of these school systems and at many of the schools within the systems. That is uh, almost of their own, uh, completely of their own doing because that's just not how the schools are oriented. Something else about uh, Seoul, and this was from Alex Taberek, uh, George Mason professor as well, writing over at the blog that he co-founded with uh, Tyler Cohen about what a radical he was. He reminded me, I, have, I remember this interview, but I have forgotten it. Walter Williams saying, I was, uh, I was more, than, any, I was more uh, than anything a radical growing up. I was more sympathetic to Malcolm X than Martin Luther King because Malcolm X was more of a 
radical who was willing to confront discrimination in ways that I thought it should be confronted, including perhaps the use of violence. But really, I just wanted to be left alone. I thought some laws, like minimum wage laws, help poor people and poor black people and protected workers from exploitation. I thought they were a good thing until I was pressed by professors to look at the evidence. And um, he did look at the evidence, and he changed his mind. And he earned his doctorate in economics in 1972 from UCLA, which had one of the top economics departments in the country at the time. He uh, recounted he probably became a libertarian through exposure to tough-minded professors like Nobel laureate James Buchanan and Milton Friedman, who he said, encouraged me to think with my brain instead of my heart. I learned that you have to evaluate the effects of public policy as opposed to the intentions. Yes, so many takeaways from the life lived by Walter Williams and the wisdom he generously doled out for, lo, these many decades. This is Dan Proft. The more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Chicago Mayor Triple Threat went on with uh, Chuck Todd to talk about uh, vaccine, vaccine distribution most specifically, and uh, the work that uh, leaders like she are doing to uh, ensure that uh, people have faith in the vaccine, you know, that you can't trust uh, Pfizer, you can't trust Moderna, you can't trust, uh, well, the authorization that's been given to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine by the British authorities, you can't trust the forthcoming authorization for the vaccines in this country from FDA, which is uh, anticipated very soon. She's it's uh, this is why she's put together her own independent panel of experts to verify that these vaccines are effective. Uh, And uh, and, you know, and and again, she is has to also deal with the hurdles presented by President Trump with respect to making sure that to people, particularly people of color, access the vaccine when they can. One, we've got a local panel of experts who are going to validate the process by which the vaccines um, have come onto the marketplace. I think that's going to be critically important. We need to make sure that we've got healthcare violators and particularly the frontline workers, not just the doctors and the nurses, um, but the um, LPNs, mm-hmm. uh, the people that are actually involved in direct patient care. When they're comfortable and they speak their truth to uh, people in the community, that's going to be incredibly important. We've got a huge Um, grassroots movement going to make sure that we educate people about the vaccine and they can see for themselves why it's safe. But it is a massive lift, um, both from an infrastructure and distribution standpoint, but also building credibility around the vaccine itself. Certainly the current president hasn't helped um, at all. And I think that that has added um, the public skepticism about the vaccine. The the current president who initiated initiated Operation Warp Speed, which uh, was instrumental in the development of these vaccines in record time. And Dan Henninger writing the Wall Street Journal that uh, those who those researchers who develop these vaccines at the various companies should get a collective a Nobel Prize. But not until Lori Lightfoot says they're entitled to a Nobel Prize after review by her local experts. This is sort of the imperiousness, the haughtiness the uh, messianic complexes that you see 
in force at the local and state level in these lockdown and bust cities and states. The mayor triple threat could not be a better exemplar. And I know she has a lot of competition with Garcetti in L.A. and de Blasio in New York in the mayoral category. But she's right there. No question about it. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Gail Trotter, attorney, political analyst and host of the podcast, The Gail Trotter Show, right in D.C. Gail, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, good to be with uh, good to have you here and uh, appreciate the piece that you, you wrote in the Hill. No, thank you, Dr. Fauci, uh, about uh, sort of being lorded over by our experts. Uh, perhaps the only thing worse than being lorded over by our experts is being lorded over by mayors like Garcetti, de Blasio and Lightfoot. Yes, I don't know if you caught in her comment that you just replayed that she said she was going to have people to speak their truth. Their truth. To other yes. people. And I've always thought that was such a strange phrase because either you speak the truth or you don't speak the truth. But speaking your truth to other people is sort of illogical. And I think it just kind of confirms the hypocrisy of all of these leaders, not just Mayor Lightfoot, but obviously Governor Newsom in California, Governor Cuomo, uh, the mayor of Denver, these people who are talking about what we should do to trust the experts and follow the expert guidance. And yet if they believed as their truth that what the experts were telling us, wouldn't they model their behavior on the recommendations of experts? So it's not just that they're hypocrites in not doing what they're telling others to do, but I think their actions belie whether or not they believe that the advice that's being given is accurate. And I think on that issue about the vaccinations, too, I think you raised an excellent point that it has been uh, run through the, the, the hurdles for all of these other scientific evaluations, and they are trying to politicize something that will get our economy back on its feet, get children back full-time in schools, and really protect our health care workers. And well, I really Gail, can't have anything yeah. worse. Yeah, I mean, see, Gail, what you have there is Pfizer is speaking its truth, and Moderna is speaking <laughs> its truth, and the FDA is speaking right. their truth, and then now we need to hear from Lori Lightfoot and her experts for their truth. <laughs> exactly. And it's the dueling scientists. How do you uh, receive the uh, revolt over the closure of Mac and the arrest of one of the proprietors of Max Public House in, in Staten Island? Do you see this as a as potentially a watershed moment where you're going to start seeing more pushback? I mean, there are court challenges, Restaurant Association in L.A. County to the lockdown orders there. You have people taking to the streets in Staten Island. Now, we've seen this before intermittently over the course of nine months, so that's not, I don't think, uh, conclusory whether or not you're going to see mass revolts in these lockdown and bust cities and states. But but there is some uh, evidence of life, if you will, and pushback uh, per Alito's comments. Uh, uh, Some of those people are are attempting to live Alito's comments. I'm so glad you raised that. Justice Alito talked about that. And he said the court essentially can't rescue us from this overreach by politicians. The court only take a limited number of cases. They can't respond quickly enough. And he says in the speech, liberty lies in the hearts of the people. And I think you're seeing some outbreaks of this. And when you contrast 
arresting someone who is just trying to keep his business open and provide for his family and his employees. And you contrast that with government actions all throughout this pandemic, including you might remember in California, they arrested this guy who was in the ocean by himself paddleboarding. And you obviously saw all summer the statues being torn down in violation of uh, federal local law. You saw all sorts of looting that um, was not really uh, that was allowed to occur in, in Chicago as well. And you, you have that contrasted with someone who is just trying to make a living and being arrested. And I think this really enrages people. She is Gail Trotter, attorney, political analyst, host of the podcast, The Gail Trotter Show, right in D.C. Gail, thanks so much for joining us. Great to join you. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, if uh, young people can hold out hope of uh, constructive engagement from a potential Biden administration, can hold out hope that Joe Biden can do something to uh, advance comedy in America, C-O-M-I-T-Y, not C-O-M-E-D-Y, like he did attempted to do in that interview with Jake Tapper. He's good at advancing comedy, usually unintentionally. Comedy is what I mean. Uh, healing the nation. This is the topic of uh, the Future View column in the Wall Street Journal this week. And uh, again, I, I, don't th- I think these are probably more likely, the students who responded to the question, more likely to sort of lean center right. But, you know, if they want to constructively engage and they have ideas of what that would look like if Biden met them halfway, for example, then, you know, you want to be open-minded, the prospect of being pressed into being uh, more accommodating than maybe the inclination of most of the people around Joe Biden. John Schlote, University of Missouri, Columbia, econ and math major. Biden shouldn't seek to undo all the policies of the previous administration or force through polarizing legislation like the Green New Deal on a slim margin of votes. This would only strain an already fractured nation. Legislation to repair the nation's infrastructure or help small businesses hit by the pandemic would offer a bipartisan route to normalcy in Washington. Mm. Yeah, not all not all bipartisanship in the advance of normalcy is good news. There was a sort of a populist revolution because of that bipartisan normalcy. But, you know, I appreciate the sentiment. Uh, This from uh, Agassi. Bagramayan, who's a University of San Diego law student, all people and ideas should be welcome in America. For that to be more than an aspiration, Biden needs to make it clear to his supporters that holding beliefs different from their own doesn't make a fellow American their enemy. He must emphasize America isn't this awful place flush with systemic racism, that hard work and personal responsibility still go a long way in this country, no matter your background. Denouncing the radical ideas that have tainted our educational institutions over the past 10 to 15 years and now are leaking into the corporate world will allow for a renewed appreciation of the fact that there are good people on both sides of the argument. Well, 
that would sort of be akin to Nixon going to China. So it's possible, but I think unlikely. And, p- p- and part of the, the reason some of these suggestions, however well intended, well intended, are unlikely is because Biden's not his own man. And he, frankly, he never has been. But okay, I will continue to tilt at windmills with the kids. Uh, one more. Tanner Wakefield, BYU, finance major. First, speak out against the cancel culture. He's spoken out on behalf of it effectively for most of the last year and a half. Second, delegate as much decision-making as possible to the states. Third, Biden can appoint some Republicans to his cabinet, signaling he'll listen to others and that he cares to understand their views. Uh, Tanner Wakefield holds out for a hopeful, brighter, more unified America. Mm. Well, I'm not saying that he's advocating hope as a strategy, but we know from eight years of Obama and Biden, it certainly isn't. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We uh, spoke about hillbilly elegy a bit earlier in the week. Uh, J.D. Vance's bestseller that was uh, made into a film by Ron Howard. It's on Netflix. Uh, all-star cast. I mean, Glenn Close plays J.D. Vance's grandmother. Amy Adams plays his mother. Two great actresses. And uh, the politics surrounding the reviews of Hillbilly Elegy. Glenn Reynolds, Mr. Instapundent, University of Tennessee law professor, writes about the New York Post. Elites won't allow any sympathy for poor whites. How do I know that Hillbilly Elegy is devastating to the left's political narrative? Because so many leftists are trying to keep people from watching it. Princeton professor Robert George responding to one negative review of Hillbilly Elegy. Do you think those who don't want you to watch Hillbilly Elegy might have, I don't know, an agenda? The campaign against the film made by the standard issue liberal filmmaker Ron Howard, by the way, is purely political. Rod Dreher comments, it's okay, it's now okay to hate deplorables again and maybe even mandatory. I think the privilege discourse among middle class educated white liberals is mostly about rearranging prejudices to make lower class white people deserving of the scorn of their uppers. Uh, I was not a fan of the adaptation of the film. I mean, see the, excuse me, the adaptation of the book on film, but for, for different reasons. I just thought it actually didn't. It was sort of flat, and it didn't provide the dimension that the book did. Uh, but there is a point that uh, some of these reviewers of the reviewers are making, and it uh, speaks to a piece that was written by our next guest, Ryan Gerdusky, What TV Can Teach Us About the White Working Class. Ryan Gerdusky is host of Tack Right, Tack right Now and author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. Ryan Gerdusky, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Before we get into uh, your uh, very interesting distillation of sitcoms over the last uh, 40 years or so and, and how white working class are treated in those sitcoms from sort of all in the family forward, what's your reaction to the reactions, particularly from the left and the uh, critic community uh, to Hillbilly Elegy, the film? Well, it's so funny because I know J.D. and I loved the book. I always plan on watching it, but then I, the reviews came out, and originally people were saying months ago that this was an Oscar nominee, this might be the film that Glenn Close finally, or Amy Adams finally win an Oscar for, because they've both been nominated, like I think 13 times between the two of them and never won. 
So I was really excited about it, and then the reviews came out, and I said, oh, maybe it's a garbage film, and I, I, I shouldn't see it. So I went to go see it. It was a good movie. I mean, it was it. I didn't, I, I agree with you, the book was better, and I didn't love, I think that the Amy Adams character playing her mother, there wasn't enough of dimension describing really why she went into being an addict, but it was a fine movie. There's a lot worse movies, especially for how horrible the reviews were, and it's so funny because earlier this year I saw Cuties, which had great reviews, <laughs> and I thought it was honestly mostly just boring. I thought that it wasn't that interesting. I thought the salacious part of the girls twerking was not necessary. But besides that, it's really not that great of a movie. It's a little bit, it's very, very dull and boring in French. And uh, there was a lot of anti-Muslim themes throughout the movie that none of the reviewers seemed to pick up on, but it was very obvious from anyone who watched the movie. So I think, I think it's clear from the perspective that they did have a bit of an agenda. And there's tons of movies that people go see that that audiences love and that reviewers and critics and people in the entertainment industry kind of get their nose at. Well, right. No question. I wonder, though, if uh, Rod Dreher might be uh, onto something when he talks about uh, that uh, despising the so-called deplorables and perhaps even caricaturing them. So for the purposes of despising them is not only uh, going to be all current, it's uh, going to be mandatory if you want to be a card carrying member of the woke culture. And if you're seeing that uh, reflective in some of the TV offerings and how white working class, if you will, or perhaps even lower class are being uh, depicted. Right. And, and, and that's kind of the point of my piece. You know, during COVID, um, I spent, like most people, spent a lot of time watching television. And I caught up a lot on older TV shows, the ones that I grew up on, either through like Nick at Night or they were in their first run when I was a child. And I did notice a general trajectory of how the white working class was being portrayed on television. You know, n- not that t- not that Hollywood is sympathetic to poor whites and not that they ever have been. But they were far more honest in their description than the news industry was or politicians in Washington ever were. Because if you start with All in the Family that was released in 19, which was premiered in 1971, um, starring Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton, uh, the show shows um, a working class white family from Queens, New York, the neighborhood I was from. Actually, like I think Archie Bunker's house is just about a half a mile from my house that I've lived in my whole life. And the general trajectory is that it didn't suck to be a member of the white working class. Archie is able to afford a house on a single income. Um, Gene Stapleton's character, Edith, has uh, some respectability in her life, and, and their, ch- their child, Gloria, is able to go to college. It does, it's not terrible to be a member of the working class during this time. And then there's about, from the beginning of All in the Family till the next show, because there was, remember, in the early 80s, mid-80s, there really wasn't any television of the working class um, families. It was a lot of shows about the upper middle class, uh, whether that be The Cosby Show or um, uh, the show with uh, Michael J. Fox, which name Family it, Ties. Right? Yeah, right. Family, Family Ties. ties. Right. Upper middle class shows, or Dallas was up there about the rich. Um, in the late 80s, you have three shows, which is The Simpsons, which is 1989, you have Roseanne in 1988, and you have um, Married with Children in 1987. And these three shows really came back and showed the working class. And if you see the general decline in the standard of living from 1972, when All in the Family premiered, to 1987, when, when, when Married with Children premieres, and obviously Married with Children is a farce, but there is a general decline. Uh, Carol O'Connor's um, character, Archie Bunker, he has some respect in the family. They never eat dinner without him sitting at the table. He's offered a cigar and a drink when he comes home from work. And remember, he's not working as an executive. He's a union member. 
um, versus the way that Al Bundy is portrayed as having no respect from his wife and kids. Um, you know, Roseanne, which is far less farcical than um, than than all than than married with children is. You see the general um, progression of how life is. Gene Stapleton's character Edith only ever had to work when Archie's union was on strike. For Roseanne, which is portrayed as a feminist character, be, having to be a working mom isn't isn't an ideal of being a quote as a, as a true feminist. And the choice of work is being fostered upon the working class as a necessity that they would starve if Roseanne didn't have a second income coming in. And and 20 years later, when Roseanne comes back. You see the character of Roseanne, who is very progressive in her, in her political stances during the first run of the show. And she very, she becomes an outspoken Trump supporter, as many of those types of people did in real life. But the characters are in basically the same economic shape they were in 20 years before. They're having to choose between food and medication as senior citizens. Their children don't really have as much of a chance as growing out of the working class as many economically disadvantaged people didn't do um, from, from, from the Midwest. Um, and then, you know, you go after you go after that and you go into shows like The Middle or Malcolm in the Middle. It's a lot of the same thing. And then the last show that my article concludes with is the show Shameless, which is now in its 11th and final season. And it's about the true despair. They, 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 it's on Showtime, so it's a much darker and grittier show. But you talk about drug abuse, homelessness, gentrification, um, the, the welfare state, all of the institutions that a character like Archie Bunker had, which was his union lodge and his church, and the belief that Richard Nixon would be a hero for the working class people, the idea of a, of a political setting and, and, a, and a local community, that is replaced by a welfare state. That is all the working class kind of have. They're, you know, in Shameless, uh, unlike in, in shows like Malcolm in the Middle or, um, or, or Married with Children or, um, or, or, or All in the Family, which have upper middle class neighbors kind of looking down on them, Shameless, they ha- there is no upper middle class. As Charles Murray wrote in, you know, in, in his books, the great sort already happened. The poor only live among the poor. The rich only live among the rich. So how is it that a younger person who never experiences or never sees somebody kind of making it sits there and says, oh, I'm going to become a tech entrepreneur or I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that? Those are not possibilities afforded to those classes. So I think that the conservative message or the, or the traditional Republican message, rather, of like the Mitt Romneys of the world says pick yourself up by your bootstraps. They're barely wearing shoes. Those opportunities and those um, abilities have been slipping away from them decade after decade after decade after decade. And and lost in their plight is the fact that it is almost an honorable position to be um, to be not I don't want to say the word ignorant, but for lack of better terms, to be not schooled, to be uneducated, to not want to read, to 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 bask in in the ghetto that which you were raised from. Um, that's a sign of honor. And the show portrays that. And I think that that is what and that's about poor whites. And I think that that is something that people kind of forget as to why there is such a huge economic divide in our country. And I think that television really portrayed that in a way that Washington never understood that and that the media never accurately covered it. He is Ryan Gerdusky, host of Tech Right Now, author of They're Not Listening, How the Elites Created the National Populist Revolution. And uh, check out his very good piece at uh, AmericanConservative.com, which I'll tweet out, what TV can teach us about the white working class. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care.
front seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. And politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, this edition of sports and politics, we got a, I think, a, a positive story and a not so positive story. And I know the not so positive story will be a challenge as we're still recovering from Sarah Fuller, SEC Football Player of the Week, for the squib kick. Okay. Chris Collinsworth, you know, the former Bengals receiver turned broadcaster. Uh, He uh, was part of the broadcast team uh, for Wednesday's Steelers-Ravens game. And uh, back when I used to watch the NFL, uh, all the way in 2019, all the way back in 2019 when I cared. I'm a diehard Steelers fan, even though I'm from Chicago. And so I would normally be very excited that the Steelers are uh, winding their way through a perfect season after defeating the Ravens, go to 11-0 and on Wednesday. But that's not why we're talking about this. Collinsworth, uh, with his broadcast partner Mike Tirico, was discussing conversations he had with Steelers fans in the game, and he uh, said, everybody, and particularly the ladies that I met, they, really have, they have really specific questions about the game. I'm like, wow, just blown away. Ah. <sighs> You understand the transgression he committed. He was blown away that female Steelers fans could have specific knowledge of the game and ask really, really good questions about it. To you know, ask him really good questions about it for his expertise. The horror of it all. Uh, after the rebuke, where else on Twitter? And among all of the woke walkers meandering about on social media without their brains, Collinsworth was forced to bend the knee, or at least he felt compelled to. Probably uh, NBC helped. Today on our broadcast, I made reference to a couple of women that I met in Pittsburgh who so impressed me with their knowledge that I, uh, their football knowledge, that I wanted to tell their story on air. I know the way I phrased it insulted many. I'm so sorry. What I intended as a compliment of the fans of Pittsburgh became an insult. I'm sick about insulting any fan, but especially female fans and journalists. I know first how much harder they have to work than any of us in this industry. I was wrong, and I deeply apologize. Please don't take my career away from me. You heard what uh, Chris Collinsworth said. I was quoting him. I was like, wow, he was impressed. Did that sound like somebody who was trying to uh, denigrate female sports fans, female journalists? Hmm. And the reaction of people who want to try to jackpot Chris Collinsworth, running roughshod over him, misogynist this, and you'll be happy to know, Chris Collinsworth, that many, many female fans have very specific knowledge of the game, whether it's football or something else. You know, Maybe you should... Uh, you know, be chipped out of ice and learn to walk upright before you broadcast an NFL game. Isn't it just tiresome? Just stupid? Uh, this, the, the culture of 
waiting to pounce on your well-intended neighbor who is not in, uh, attempting to marginalize or hurt, commit a violent act against anybody. I mean, good grief. This is uh, about the same as comparing Sarah Fuller to <laughs> Mac Jones, the Alabama quarterback, and trying to decide who should be SEC Athlete of the Week. Okay, a football player of the week. All right, we got through that. Uh, staying on football, but a positive story. Lou Holtz, the great uh, football coach, Notre Dame coach, was honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Trump yesterday. And uh, Lou Holtz, with his typical aw shuck, self effacing. You go look at all the people in. You go look at all the people in Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas. They recognize for what they did. I recognize for what other people did. I never made a block or a tackle, but I did try to teach people to make good choices. That's all I've ever tried to do, but thank you. Yeah, he did. And um, you think about uh, Lou Holtz. Uh, you know, he, he um, has weighed in on some of the controversies about uh, uh, flag, uh, kneeling before the flag and so forth. Um, here's some, some Lou Holtz from earlier in the year amid some of these controversies. But I do think they have to address the the problem where people are showing disrespect for the flag. Now, I don't disagree that they have an awful lot of complaints, but football is not the place to do that. Uh, When you show disrespect for the flag, you kneel down during the national anthem, and you stand for the national anthem of England, that does upset the people and cause you to say, wait a minute, what's going on? As I used to say to our football team all the time, and I say this about this country, we aren't where we want to be. We aren't where we ought to be. We aren't where we should be. We aren't where we're going to be. But thank God we aren't where we used to be. There's some things wrong, but we've also done an awful lot of good things. Let's be constructive. Let's help younger people. How about that? I I don't know if that's acceptable. I'm thankfully I think Lou Holtz is of an age and from a time where he doesn't care, and he doesn't need to have to genuflect before the mob. If he felt he needed to, he probably wouldn't have given a speech at the RNC on behalf of President Trump. But uh, the the occasion of his receipt of the Presidential Medal of Freedom reminds me of uh, this uh, commencement speech he gave at Steuben uh, at uh, Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, a few years back. And he uh, said, among other things, uh, he he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Now, Holtz was born in the cellar of his family's home in Fallensby, West Virginia. First seven and a half years of his life, he shared a bedroom with his parents and sister. The home had a kitchen and and a half bath. Um, But he said, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Why? Because I I was taught by my parents that life's a matter of making choices. If you get an education, you're willing to work and overcome problems and difficulties. In this great country, you can amount to something. That's why I was born with a silver spoon. I was in this country, and I was taught personal responsibility for the choices I make. And Holtz uh, also, in that same commencement address on the the, uh, the four things that... If you don't have any of these four things in your life, you're going to have a tremendous void. See, everybody needs something to do. Number two, everybody needs someone to love. Number three, everybody needs someone to believe it. In my case, is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
But the fourth thing you need in your life is you need something to hope for. There's never a right time to do the wrong thing. And there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. Just do what's right. I think it's right to be honest, right beyond time. See, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy life. Have fun. You're going to have problems. You're going to have difficulties. That's part of life. And don't tell people about your problems. Do you know that 90% of the people don't care? <laughs> and the other 10% are glad you got them. So you're better off keeping your love that line. I love that You're going to have problems. But have fun with what you're doing, people. Uh, yeah, you now can appreciate why he was a master motivator as a football coach. This is Dan Prof. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. When you started out with nothing and you found a tourist man. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and returning to our discussion we had a bit earlier in the program with uh, David Marcus from The Federalist, the uh, balance between uh, COVID prevention and our liberty in a free society. Listen to this missive from a suburban school district superintendent in suburban Chicago. I'm writing this communication to you out of disappointment. I have repeatedly asked the community to do its part to prioritize keeping schools open during this challenging time. A photograph is circulating on social media showing a group of women including several parents who participated in a turkey trot over the holiday weekend. The people in this photo are not social distancing or wearing masks, and the photo has begun circulating among our staff. Our teachers are doing valiant work on behalf of your children, but staff morale is low, our employees are anxious, and unlike families, they generally do not have the choice of an in-person or remote option. This photograph and other posts of recent holiday travel and gatherings on social media are hurtful to staff and is undermining our efforts to keep our schools open. I implore you to do your part to keep help keep our schools open and sh- shared sacrifice, come together, do the right thing. Dr. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Matt Barbini, who's the school superintendent for Libertyville, Libertyville Schools in uh, North Suburban Chicago. That is a remarkable letter. Remarkable times where you have a school superintendent monitoring, because he can and others can, the private activities of the families who send their kids to the local government school. I saw you posted a picture of your participation in a turkey trot. Oh, the horrors. I saw you posted a picture of you traveling over the holiday to point A or point B. Does that, is that, should that be concerning at all? Or is that just you know, part of the new normal and social media area and uh, thanks to social, and social media era and the intersection of social media and COVID makes it, everybody, makes it easier for everybody to uh, live the lives of others culture that uh, the left seems to want to impose on America? For more on that question, we're pleased to be joined by Thaddeus McCarter. He is the former chairman of the House Republican House Policy Committee, American Greatness contributor, and Monday co-host of the John Bachelor Show. Thaddeus McCotter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. How, I mean, you were a member of Congress. Uh, you've dealt with school officials before. You understand these issues. You've written about COVID and liberty. How do you react to that? Uh, the letter I excerpted. 
So he's he's upset. It's undermining the morale of the teachers, but are the kids in the school? They are, and he's doing his best to keep the kids in school, uh, or they have remote or in-person options due to the families. He says the teachers don't have sub- such options, and uh, it's just very you know disrespectful, and, and this is the word he uses, hurtful to the teachers and staff at the school, what these parents who participated in a turkey trot are doing. So he wants parents not to go in a turkey trot. Yeah. Right? So where's the science showing that the turkey trot is a problem? Well, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. He didn't really get into the science. He just is describing what he finds hurtful because people aren't wearing masks and people are, are turkey trotting and uh, people are not social distancing and people are visiting with their neighbors. And, of course, we can't have any of that if we want to keep the kids in school, I guess, is the formulation. Well, how does he know that that affects the kids? Well, I, These kids are very resistant to it. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out where basically he, he wants more lockdown. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is where, you know, I, I, I it seems to me and this is uh, emblematic of a larger phenomenon, which is I, I don't have a mind of my own. I'm just repeating the diktats that have been passed down from the CDC or or some selected uh, TV public health professional that uh, represents a. Uh, you know, a politician that, that's an advisor to a politician I like. I'm just rinsing and repeating. This is uh, us giving us you know, the illusion of control. If you, don't part, if you don't run in a turkey trot and you wear a mask outside and you stay six feet away, then we're going to defeat this virus. Yeah, where all the science is showing that that really hasn't done much of anything. So I, no, I, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, it would be interesting to know if he, was, if he had supported not having the kids in school at some point, despite well, all the evidence that they should have been. You know what I mean? Well, well right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, um, he, 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 it's just, you know, the, the approach is to say that, you know, we're doing heroic work and we expect you to, you know, hew to our orthodoxy. And if you don't, then you're undermining our heroism and sacrifice. I mean, this, this is a, this is a time when all you hear from politicians, and I include those as sort of these government commissars in charge of schools is about shared sacrifice. There, there's, there's never a discussion about protecting your individual liberty, about protecting your freedom of conscience, about the balance between public health and, and liberty in a free society. There, you never hear that topic addressed by certain cohorts of people with authority. It's interesting to me. It's all about driving the narrative of the collective. Together, uh, we're stronger. Alone, together. It's yes. all about reducing the individual, the the. the the jealous protection of our individual rights and being subsumed by the status collective collectivists. So no, I, I agree. I absolutely agree with you. So yeah. Okay. That's the excerpt. I got, I got where you're going. Yeah. We're on the same page. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll continue our discussion with Thaddeus McCotter. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this and the topic of people's uh, lives and livelihoods. Uh, we'll be right back. With you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Thaddeus McCotter, former chairman of the Republican House Policy Committee, American Greatness contributor, Monday co-host of the John Bachelor Show, and uh, former Congressman McCotter. Uh, you uh, wrote about uh, what you think are the, the uh, drivers of lockdown decisions. I'm saying, suggesting they're more political than medical or scientific. 
I think we've seen some illustrations of that, but, but which are some of the more egregious examples that should be instructive to people of politics driving these decisions at the expense of uh, any sort of balancing test at the expense of people's lives and livelihoods? Well, what you're seeing is, in, in a sense, what we've saw with prohibition. Prohibition was largely unenforceable. You saw the hypocrisy of the elites that could have their alcohol while the rest of society was not allowed uh, to partake. And you saw the rise of organized crime. In short, you saw law-abiding citizens uh, becoming scoff laws. And when you see the hypocrisy that comes out of the lockdown lemmings and their, and their governors and others, where it is one set of rules for the rest of us and one set of exceptions for them, you start to see individual Americans begin to lose their respect uh, for the rule of law. They begin to lose their respect for the established elected mechanisms by which their servant government is supposed to operate. And in sort, they start to become scoff laws themselves. And in many ways, it actually does more to diminish the reality of the virus and the dangers it poses than anything else, because you're having government officials showing you that while they're arguing that the virus is very lethal, very horrible, very dangerous, which I think it is dangerous, they're also behaving in a way that belies that argument. And that is not lost upon the American people, especially when they're being asked to give up rights across the board for the, quote, greater good. Much of this, as we can talk about, is not being based upon scientific evidence. Uh, it was uh, Frederick Hayek who said to be controlled in our economic pursuits is to be controlled in everything. And uh, this note that Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, received from a restaurateur, in Massachusetts, in Boston area. I'm a restaurant catering business owner whose livelihood and income has been obliterated by government restrictions in Massachusetts. Our 2019 gross revenue, 2.2 million. We're on pace to end 2020 with about 240,000 in sales. Our workforce of 35, many of us who had been, many of them who had been with us for 10 years plus is gone, all laid off. We have been working for six or seven days a week since July. I'm trying to survive until the spring, but who knows how much the public's habits have changed. Will they ever come back? You know, those sort of plaintiff questions that are being asked by the risk, the creative risk-taking productive set all across America and with very little answers from political leaders. So it's a, all the debate is about how much more government money are we going to print and in what way are we going to distribute it rather than a conversation about when are we going to let this business owner, this catering business owner in, in Boston reopen his business. Well, and what we're seeing, and you're right, and what we're seeing then is the fact that there is a continual denial of the fact that lockdowns have consequences. They cause major societal damage, including deaths, bankruptcies, domestic abuse, suicides, overdoses. And to pretend that those aren't part of any type of equation that government and elected officials and the public need to factor in to support for the lockdowns is beyond galling. It is insane. And, and so you have to look at all of this, and they simply refuse to. Instead, they give you the sanctimonious moralizing that if you oppose lockdown, do you want to kill a grandma? When, as you know better than anybody, when you had governors putting people who were infected with COVID-19 in nursing homes with the most vulnerable amongst us, they were literally killing grandma and grandpa. And they project upon us that for trying to make reasonable uh, decisions based upon the evidence at hand, the scientific facts in front of us, which they refuse to do. Well, that's right. I mean, in Illinois, Illinois reported uh, the single, its single deadliest day this week, 238 deaths reported. And the breakout not reported because the goal is hysteria, not understanding. Of the 238 deaths reported on that single deadliest COVID day in Illinois, 93% of those were uh, individuals 60 and over. Um, 120 of the 238 were 80 years 
and over. And we've known this for a long, there were zero fatalities under the age of 40. And, and that's consistent with what we've seen throughout the last nine months. But if you, you know, survey the general populace in terms of their understanding of the lethality of the virus, they make no distinctions between somebody under 20 or over 80. Many people do. But I, but I think one of the things, too, that is very frustrating to get to get the public to accept and understand the lethality of this is the fact that they continue to conflate people who die from COVID with people who die with it. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things. And there's also a category where they can assume that you may have had it if you've passed away. You need actual, honest, legitimate numbers out of this so people can make up their own minds and make their own decisions because the only way to deal with the virus in, in the, until they get a vaccine is for people to make their own estimations of their risk of what risk they're going to assume, and then to understand as well what the reality of the risk is for other people. But we're not seeing that. And we're not seeing that in Los Angeles. We're not seeing that in Detroit. We're not seeing this where governors and mayors are making sweeping declarations without scientific evidence. And, in fact, we've just seen one recently from Mr. Biden where he's saying that for 100 days he wants us all to wear masks. Where is the scientific evidence showing me that's the appropriate time frame, that somehow that's a magical time frame? So what he's done is really he's at the very time he says masks shouldn't be political. He's politicizing masks. Uh, I wanted to get you, your reaction too, since you wrote about the freedom of conscience. We mentioned it a little bit before the break. Uh, the importance of that Supreme Court decision uh, striking down Andrew Cuomo's infringements on religious liberty in, in New York State, and and just how precarious you think freedom of conscience uh, is in America right now. Well, the left wants to trans- transform America. They want to fundamentally transform America, which means they want to fundamentally transform you. And the way that they do it is to continue to attack your First Amendment rights, your freedom of speech. They try to silence people. So what the whole cancel culture is about. And it's what you're seeing with a lot of this continuing failure to apply strict scrutiny to any type of infringement upon religious liberty in the country. When you look at the First Amendment, when you look at the rights that are protected under the First Amendment, what they're really doing in your free conscience, what's a right to free speech if you can't think what you want? What good is a right to have a non-established religion if all of a sudden the government can come and tell you, well, you can't go to church? Because then your freedom of conscience is being impinged. These rights that you have under are undergirded by the freedom of conscience. They're a way to express it. And the government, the left, continues to hammer away at these rights, which is because it is the way that they want to mean to make you more malleable and to transform you into what they believe you should be. It is inherently anti-American. It's inherently wrong intrinsically evil and it should be rejected at all costs and that's why the freedom of conscience has to be protected he is thaddeus mccarter former chairman of the republican house policy committee american greatness contributor and monday co-host of the john bachelor show thaddeus mccarter thanks so much for joining us appreciate it uh, thanks for having me Welcome back to the show and uh, to uh, borrow from 80s hairband Tesla signs, signs everywhere. There's signs effing up the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this. Don't do that. Can't you read the sign? These are some good signs, though. As opposed to the hate has no home here and the other virtue signaling signs. I'll give you a fun ones to end the week. 
been another challenging one, exhausting one mentally. A, a trendy boutique, Kitson L.A., put up uh, signs in, uh, in, the, in their windows, the uh, hypocritical people of the year 2020, hypocrites of 2020, the window signs. Fraser Ross, owner of the Kitson L.A. boutique, had $400,000 in damages to his stores during the weeks of rioting and, lo- and looting over the summer. And um, obviously he's been severely negatively impacted by the coronavirus lockdowns in L.A. So he used his big shop windows on on, uh, Robertson Boulevard in L.A. to call out said hypocrites, for example. (laughs) There's some fun ones, too. Not the obvious ones, just all the politicians, you know, the mayor of Austin saying don't travel while uh, uh, delivering the message from his uh, timeshare in Cabo and the mayor of Denver and so many of the others. um, Gosh, my home state uh, governor and mayor. He's got some fun ones. Perhaps you've forgotten. How about Alyssa Milano? He's got Alyssa Milano with a uh, Santa hat and defund the police T-shirt on and the uh, caption. And it's scrawled out uh, in stencil lettering on his window. David, call 911. There's a squirrel in our backyard. Remember that? Highlighting Milano's hypocrisy to call 911 to report a man with a gun in her backyard who turned out to be a neighbor shooting squirrels with a BB gun while at the same time she was advocating to hashtag defund police. And the the Milano window features a stuffed squirrel. Uh, Nancy Pelosi rules for thee, not for me. And it's got her with a Santa hat on in the salon that she was set up in, right, to get her hair cut during the shutdown. That's a good one. He's got Newsom up there. Of course, you got to do some of the locals uh, with a Santa hat on at French Laundry. I demand a better table at French Laundry restaurant, and I want to be seated inside with my 22 friends, exclamation point. That's the caption under Newsom. Uh, and uh, Chrissy Teigen, the wife of John Legend, I'll pay $100,000 to help rioters and criminals get out of jail. That's her caption. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, 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 there's there's some others, including Garcetti and Hunter Biden, Tony Fauci. This guy's uh, really uh, uh, gone full bore with... Uh, well, making his store festive for the holidays, if you will. And uh, there's some sarcasm out there, too, in the form of signage. There was a sign at a eatery in Chicagoland. I won't name it because I don't want that eatery to get the uh, treatment that Max Public House in Staten Island is getting. But the sign, sorry, I'm open. Hmm. The uh, battle against the state to eke out a living during COVID-19 continues, at least in some quarters. Thank you for joining us all week on the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again on Monday. Have a great weekend in the interim. This is the Dan Prof Show.